I want you to take your Bibles, please, and turn to 2 Corinthians 5 as we continue our verse-by-verse exposition of this tremendous epistle in which the apostle is defending his apostleship and explaining the nature of the ministry under the new covenant. We stopped at verse 10 last time, and we took a special look at the judgment seat of Christ because Paul mentions this in verse 10 when he says we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now picking up, picking up at verse 11, he goes on to show how that truth impacts his life and his ministry. Notice what he says in verse 11. Now I'm going to try to do as Ezra did way back where he, when he found the law, the scripture says that he read it and he explained it so the people could understand. We're going to try to do that again today as we go through this passage verse by verse because it's such a tremendous truth that is emphasized in this passage. Verses 11 through 21. It's a truth that we need to get a hold of and I think if it does, it can transform our life and it can give us the purpose for living. You know, it was amazing. Some time ago, a very popular book came out talking about uh, the purpose for living and all of that. But never once was it mentioned, with this scripture passage mentions, about the true purpose of living. We will see that in a moment. This is what it says in verse 11 then. Therefore, in other words, in light of what I have just said concerning appearing before the judgment seat of Christ. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord. Now he's not talking about being frightened of the Lord. He talks about the awesome uh, event is going to be when he stands before the judgment seat of Christ and knowing that everything that he has done in the flesh, in his body, on this earth will be examined for a reward or a lack of reward. Knowing this, he says, we persuade men. In other words, the reason why he was doing what he was doing was because of this truth. But we are made manifest to God. And I hope that we are made manifest also in your conscience. Now again, in in order to understand the true import of these passages, we must keep in mind the thrust of the entire epistle. Paul is defending his, his apostleship. He was being accused of many things by false teachers as well as some of the Christians at Corinth. And he is defending himself against his accusations. So here is how... I interpret this verse in light of that context. He says, what he's actually saying is, because of my awareness of having to give an account to God, I live before men in such a way so as to persuade them of my sincerity. In other words, his purity in serving Christ. However, God knows my innermost motivations. I hope that you would be able to see me as God does. If you do, You'll see that I am a genuine apostle called by God, not a charlatan as accused by some at Corinth. That's the context of the the message here. He is saying that what he is doing and the way he does it is because of the fact that he knows he has to stand before God. You might not be aware of my motivation, but God is. I wish that you were aware of my motivation. If you were, you wouldn't accuse me of the things that you've accused me of. But I'm not going to appear before you is the implication. I am going to appear before God. And then he goes on to verse 12. He says, we are not again commanding ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance 
and not in heart. And that's what he's focusing on, what man can see from the outside, but not inside as God sees. And that's how they were judging. They were judging things based on their outward appearance. So what he's actually saying in verse 12 is, now I want you to understand this clearly. I'm not trying to build myself up, as some saying that I might, but rather I'm providing you with the facts that are necessary for you to properly respond to those who are looking only at the outward rather than inner motivation to judge my ministry. He says, what I am saying is not in order to make myself look good, but to understand, but, but, but so that you can understand what is happening so that you would be able to respond to those who accuse me properly. In other words, Paul was providing basic truth to the believers so that they might confront the false teachers with the truth about his ministry. You have to see that there. Paul is trying to equip the believers there with truth in order to help him defend his ministry. Now he goes on, verse 13. For if we are beside ourselves, the literal translation, if we are out of our minds or crazy, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. Now, sometimes it's difficult to understand this verse because we take it over its context. But what he's saying is here, I want you to understand this, he says. You see, if I'm crazy or out of my mind as some charge that I am, then I'm crazy and out of my mind for God. And elsewhere he talks about being a fool for Christ's sake. That's what he's saying here as well. He says, if what I am doing seems to be so far out, you think I've lost my mind. Well, I'm doing that because that's my mission. That's what God has called me to do. But if you look at me at being sane and I'm all there, then it's for your benefit. In other words, you understand that what I am doing, I'm doing out of a sound mind, out of pure motivations. I am who I am doing what I do the way I do because of God's call upon my life and the recognition that I have to stand before him one day to give an account of my life. Now, beloved, we should live with that in mind. Isn't that right? This is what is driving Paul, the fact that he has to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. His whole life is built on that recognition. And what he's trying to tell the folk here is that we should be doing, our life should be lived in the same fashion here. Then he goes on, verse 14, he says, For, that's a reason now, the love of Christ controls us. That's a powerful word there. It moves us, it motivates us, it directs us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. Now this is where he begins to get into the meat of this passage. To explain a fantastic spiritual truth, a doctrine, in a way to show how it applies to our everyday life. How it applied to him specifically. So this is what he says actually in verse 14. If you see the whole epistle in context. Here's why I am who I am and do what I do the way I do it. It's because I am compelled by the love of Christ for me. He is motivating, he's compelling all my motions, everything I do, everything I say, the way I do it, the way I say it. It's being, I'm being motivated by Christ's love for me. Then he says, because I am now convinced, fully persuaded, that if he died for all, then it must follow that all for whom he died, died also. Now it's important here to understand Paul's teachings in the epistles. Paul is applying his teaching 
that Jesus did not only die for us, but he also died as us. This is one of the significant truths that he's going to be mentioning here. And beloved, if we get a hold of this, it could transform our lives. He did not only die for us, he died as us. When he died, we died also. That's his teaching throughout all of his epistles. He's going to develop this truth throughout the remaining verses of this passage. And he's going to explain it in a wonderful way to show that if we really understand why Christ died and the fact that he died not only for us, but also as us, it will transform our life and will give us a purpose for living, the true purpose for living. Notice what he says, verse 5. And he died for all. Notice now, so that, in order that, this is in Greek, it's called a purpose clause, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but live for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Again, he is applying the truth of what it means to be in Christ, what it means to be in Jesus Christ. So here's the point he's saying, Jesus died for all, in order that those for whom he died will no longer live for themselves. Now, what is Paul is saying here is, he's not saying that Jesus died to save us from hell, first of all. Now, of course, he did that too. But he's saying here, primary purpose for Christ dying is that those who died with him and lived with him might now live for him. They will live as him, as we'll see in a moment. He died, here's the point he's saying, he died for all, in order that those for whom he died will no longer live for themselves, but rather they will live for the one who died and rose again on their behalf. Beloved, if you haven't marked that passage in your Bible yet, or underline it, or underscore it, highlight it, do it now. This is the purpose for your living as a Christian. If you miss this, you've missed your entire purpose for you being here. If Jesus Christ only had died to save you from hell and to get you from heaven, he would, have moved, he would have translated you the moment you said yes to Christ. But he didn't do that, did he? He saved you. And when he left, he says, Father, I am leaving this world, but what? I am leaving them in the world. Sanctify them through your word, to the truth, and your word is truth. Isn't that right? So he's left us here. Why? To live as he lived. Not only to live for him, but to live as he lives. In other words, our purpose for being on earth now as believers is to live as Christ would have lived if he were here himself. That's it. If we miss that, we've missed the whole thing in our Christian life. And that's no exaggeration. Now this is what we call the resurrected life. Paul develops this in Romans 6 when he talks about our being identified with Christ. He says, when we when Christ died, we died with him. When he went into the grave, we went with him. When he came out of the grave, we came out of the grave with him. We were resurrected with him. In other words, we as believers share as much in the resurrection of Jesus Christ as we share in his death. Why? Because he died not only for us, but he died as us. When he died, we died. But also, when he arose, we rose with him. He then goes on to explain that the natural, logical, and necessary results and implication of living this kind of life, the kind of resurrected life for which he died for us to experience. 
He goes on to explain that. Listen to what he says in the next verse, verse 16. Therefore, now, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in that way no longer. He is talking about what should happen, in fact, what happened if we truly believe it, but we must acknowledge it. He's saying this, and let's, let's personalize it for Paul. Paul is saying this, this means for me personally that I, I do not see or regard anyone on a purely human or physical level anymore. That even applies to my view of Jesus. Even though I did see him once only through human physical eyes, that is no longer true. In other words, yeah. I knew Jesus, well, I knew him as a, as a man, a physical being. I know he's a carpenter. I knew that he was a prophet. I saw him as a peasant. I saw all of these things. But he says, now I can and do see him for who he truly is. And that perspective came on the road to Damascus. Who are you, Lord? Remember that? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. From that moment on, Paul saw Jesus in a new light, from a new perspective, his entire life changed. He says, now I can and do see him for who he truly is. He is the Messiah, the son of the living God. This is true because of what it means to be in Christ. When we are in Christ, Christ's perspective, our perspective of Christ takes on a different view. He's not just a historical figure anymore. But he is the personal living being who indwells our very soul. That's what Paul is saying here. Now, he makes that statement in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, now notice that, in Christ, that's the position, that's the location you have to be if you are going to get this perspective of Jesus Christ and everyone else. He is a new creature, a new creation. Now notice, he didn't say that he will become. He didn't say he might be. He is. This is what happens the moment you are truly regenerated. Now notice I didn't say it came through the moment you raised your hand or you walked down the aisle or you sat. No, no, no. It came through the moment you were regenerated. When you truly place faith in Jesus Christ. When you change your mind concerning who he was in your own life and you placed your faith in Jesus Christ. Then he says... You become a new creation, a new creation. That means if you're a new creation, you're not the old one anymore. The old things passed away, not will pass away. Behold, new things have come. We are entirely a new person when we are in Christ. Paul says that's the new perspective you must have if you are going to find the true purpose for life as a believer. And so what he's saying in this verse 17, in other words, to summarize what I am saying, Whenever a person is in Christ, he or she immediately becomes a new spiritual creation. His or her old way of seeing, deceived, perceiving things have been totally replaced and transformed. Listen carefully, Paul says, to what I am saying. When we become in Christ, a totally new perspective on life has come. Totally, totally. And this is no if, maybe, or buts here. This is how it is. As believers, this is how we are to understand ourselves to be. A new creation. 
And notice verse 18. Now all these things are come from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. What a tremendous passage of scripture this is. This is what he's saying in my paraphrase. Now, be assured of this, Corinthians. God is the source and origin of this amazing transformation. He is the one who brought us back into a right relationship with himself through Jesus Christ. Then, amazingly, he entrusted us with the ministry of reconciliation to communicate to others. In other words, Paul is saying, God did not just bring us into a right relationship with him in order that we might enjoy it and just sit on the porch under the tree and enjoy life. No, no, no. He says, I've done it, so you could now take that message to others who need it. That's the reason why you were born again. Communicate the message of reconciliation that you enjoyed to others also. That's one of the reasons for our existence as believers. Now he says, namely, in other words, this is what I'm saying. This is it. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Now this is another amazing statement. We can take this two words, two ways. We could take it to mean that God was in Christ in the sense of Jesus being divine, which is true of God's. But the other sense of thinking is that God used Christ, and I'm saying that in a good sense, in order to reconcile us to himself. Both are true, of course. He is divine, and God did utilize Christ to reconcile us to himself. He is the propitiation for our sins. Big word, but simply means the satisfaction for our sins. Jesus Christ, by his death on the cross, his resurrection, satisfied all the demands of a holy God against us as unbelievers. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. In other words, a part of this reconciliation work was the forgiveness of sins. God put our sins away. When we became in Christ, our sins were gone. Our sins are not with us in Christ. You understand what I'm saying? If we are in Christ, our sins are not there. Cannot be. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now, friends, beloved, this is an amazing passage of scripture here. And we cannot, we must not overlook it or regard it hastily. So what is Paul saying? Here's what he's saying, my paraphrase. Here's the message which is at the core of the ministry of reconciliation. Now, Paul is going to describe the content of his message of reconciliation. In other words, he's actually going to say what he preaches when he preaches the ministry of reconciliation. He's saying here that it, the message of reconciliation proclaims that God has provided the basis for reconciliation to himself for everyone through the person and work of Jesus Christ, which includes the forgiveness of sins. That's a great message, isn't it, beloved? That's the message that you and I should be sharing to others on a day-by-day basis. The fact that their sins could be forgiven if they be reconciled to God. What a tremendous message. So notice what he says. Therefore, as a result of this, we are ambassadors for Christ. Now this word is being maligned today by many who preach the so-called kingdom gospel today. Saying as an ambassador... You don't have to worry about buying anything, paying anything, because your boss can pay it for you, and you deserve the best wherever you go, because that's what ambassadors do. That's not talking about that at all. What is being focused on here is the message of ambassador, the fact that you represent somebody else. 
and you deliver a message and you must deliver the message that was given. Unfortunately, many who are calling themselves ambassadors today are proclaiming their own message and not the messenger of the one who sent them. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now this is what Paul is saying to, this is what Paul is saying he preaches when he preaches the message of reconciliation. He isn't preaching this to the Corinthians because the Corinthians were already recon, reconciled to God. But he is describing verbatim the message that he proclaims when he calls, when he preaches what we call preaching the gospel. And this is what he's saying in this verse then. This makes us ambassadors for Jesus Christ, not for ourselves. We represent him. And so regard our appeal to you to accept this message of reconciliation as an appeal from Jesus Christ himself. He's saying now, I am acting as Christ, not only for Christ, I am acting as Christ. Christ is standing here and he's appealing to you, please, please be reconciled to God. Jesus has done the work. Accept his gracious offer through us on his behalf. Make peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And friends, that's the message we proclaim to you today. Make peace with God today. Be reconciled to God. The work has been done by Jesus Christ on the cross. He took, and he's going to explain that in a moment, the penalty for your sin so you do not have to bear it. That's the good news, you see. And he wants us to enjoy that blessing, but also to spread it as well. Listen to verse 21 now. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now remember now, this is the message that Paul is preaching when he preaches the gospel. Now unfortunately this passage here has been abused today. People are taking this passage now who call themselves ambassadors to say that Jesus Christ became a sinner on the cross, that he was contaminated with our sin. They go so far as to say if he took HIV upon himself. If you are a prostitute, he took prostitution upon himself. If you are a murderer or a liar, he became a murderer and a liar on the cross. My friends, that's heresy. That is not true. Jesus Christ is the Holy One of God from birth through resurrection, and he still is. If Jesus Christ was made a sinner, he would not be able to die in our place. All right? We would be very careful with that now, because as I say, many people are misrepresenting this. So what Paul is saying here now, here's why God made Jesus, who was not a sinner, to bear the penalty of our sin upon himself, in order that in him we might be as righteous as he is before God. Now try to get a hold of that, if it's possible for you to wrap your mind around it. When we stand in the presence of God, because God sees us in Christ, he sees us as being as righteous and free from sin as Jesus Christ is. Because Christ did not only die for us, he died as us. Do you understand? So again I say, let's, this is what I call... Um, let me take some time here because we've got plenty of time to explain this. This is what I call reverse justification. 
Now that's my term. I haven't found it anywhere in any writing. That's my term. But it has to do with what happens when we are justified. Now do you know what it means to be justified? What does it mean? To be declared righteous. It doesn't mean that we are righteous. But it means a judicial act, a legal act, where the one who charges us with something suddenly reverses that charge now and says, you are completely free of it. You're not guilty of it any longer. Now, we still are guilty because we sinned. Isn't that right? But God sees us as not being guilty. Why? Because he sees us in Christ. Let me explain to you why I call it reverse justification. On the cross, God did just the opposite in his view of Jesus Jesus Christ. He declared Jesus Christ to be a sinner, although he wasn't. In that way, he was able to bear the guilt of our sin, although he wasn't. So Jesus Christ did not become a sinner, but he became a he became a sin bearer in the sense that bearing the penalty for our sin. All right? Very important for us to see here now, to understand here. <clears throat> and so there was a reverse thing going on. What happened to us was the exact opposite of what happened to Jesus Christ. But the only way we could be justified is if Jesus Christ was first charged with something that he was not guilty of. And he took it on our behalf. So Jesus Christ became our sin offering. He did not become a sinner. Jesus Christ, the sinless, pastless, holy son of God, did not become a sinner on Calvary. He was not contaminated with sin. He became the bearer of sin's penalty on our behalf. Judicially, God did indeed see us, the sinner in him, the sinless one. But that is imputed or transferred guilt. It is not actual personal guilt. Jesus bore the penalty for our guilt. He did not become guilty himself because, uh, because he was infused with our sin. But rather, he became a bearer away of the penalty of our sin because God charged our sin to his account although he did not Uh, He did not make up that himself. He did not, in fact, sin, but yet God charged him for our sin. Now, he, Jesus Christ, is no more or did no more become contaminated with our sin as did the scapegoat in the Old Testament, who did not actually become contaminated with the person's sin by the laying on of hands upon the head of that scapegoat by the priest. You know that's what happened in the Old Testament, right? All of this is a figure of the death of Christ. There's what is called the scapegoat. The priest would bring this goat into the presence of the people, and then on their behalf they would lay their hands upon this scapegoat, what they call the scapegoat, with the idea of transferring their sin or the penalty for their sin upon the scapegoat. And then they would release the scapegoat and he goes into the wilderness never to be found again. That's the idea of Jesus taking away our sin. Not being able to find them anymore. But that scapegoat did not actually take the sin of the people upon themselves. He simply took the penalty for their sin. That's the idea here. And that's what happened 
on the cross of Calvary. When Jesus Christ died for us and as us. God transferred all the guilt that we had upon Jesus Christ. Although he did no sin. He was therefore able to bear the penalty for our sin without becoming a sinner himself. This is very, very important. Because I say we have false teachers today who say that Jesus Christ was demonized on the cross. He actually became a demon. He went to hell and the devil and all his people beat him up. That's really that they beat him up for three days. But then finally he became victorious. And he arose as the first born again Christian. That was his thought. That's heresy. It's a lie. As many say, from the pit of hell. And I have no fear or hesitation in saying that. He goes on. Now, this is a continuation of his message now of reconciliation. It goes from verse 19 or 20 to verse 2 of chapter 6. He says, And working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. So he's saying, also on his behalf, I encourage you not to disregard this offer of reconciliation. Because as he has promised, verse 2, at the acceptable time, I listened to you. And on the day of salvation, I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Paul is saying this is his message of reconciliation. These are the words he uses. He's saying now that God has promised that he will listen to you at the appropriate time. The day of your salvation. Now Paul is saying, I want you to listen carefully. That day is now. That day is now when God will listen to you. Notice he says, listen carefully. Now is the day of salvation. This is the acceptable time. This is the time I will listen to you. Don't let this time of reconciliation pass you by. Be reconciled to God now. That was Paul's message of reconciliation. And that's our Paul's message. That's our message to you on behalf of Christ right now. God has has promised to hear you at the acceptable time of salvation. And that acceptable time is whenever you hear the message of reconciliation because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the message we're giving you today. Jesus died in your place. He died to take the penalty of your sin. He was raised again as a validation of the fact that God accepted Christ's death on your behalf. Everything that is needed to be reconciled to God has been done by Jesus Christ. The work is finished. All you have to do is accept it. And so I say to you right now, as Paul says in his preaching, be reconciled to God right now. Today is the day of your salvation. If you are an unbeliever now and you walk out as an unbeliever, you may never hear that message again. You may never have an opportunity to be reconciled. Why? Because this is the time for your reconciliation right now. That's the import of this passage. And so I ask you, are you really reconciled to God? You say, well, how can I tell? Well, one of the ways you can tell right now is what is the purpose of your life? Why are you living? Paul is very clear here that Jesus died so that those who live and accept him might live what? For him. 
is your life a life that has been lived for him? This is what I call the exchange life. Christ died for us and as us. We must now live for him and as him. That's the exchange life. And if you are not experiencing that exchange life in your experience right now, perhaps you need to ask yourself if you are really reconciled to God. Because there has to be a change. That's what Paul says we become new creations. This isn't something that is worked out gradually. This comes out immediately. You become new creations. And your life is lived now for Jesus Christ. The exchange life. The one who died, died for us. So that those who live because of his death might live for him and as him. So I have to ask you, who are you living for? What's the purpose of your life? Is Jesus Christ top priority? Or is it your wife? Now, wife has a big priority over there. Let me tell you that. Big priority, but not above Jesus Christ. Your children, your job, your church. No, no. Jesus Christ. He must be the priority of our life at all times. Completely sold out for him. That's why we have been saved. So that those who live might live for Jesus Christ. And one of the aspects of that living for Christ is proclaiming the message of reconciliation. Let others know that they can be reconciled to God and they need to be reconciled immediately because when they hear that message, that's the time that God says is an acceptable time to respond to that gospel. So what about your life? Are you courageous enough to examine to see whether or not you be in the faith by seeing if your life has really been lived for Christ or has it been lived for you and for good times and for, and for a satisfied life and so on. Jesus is saying here that the real purpose for living is to live for him and as him. And a part of that is to proclaim to others that they can be reconciled to God today. That's the message of this passage. Amen? Let's bow in a word of prayer. First, let me make another appeal to any of you who might not have yet placed, placed faith in Jesus Christ. This is a moment to do it. When Jesus Christ entered Jerusalem on that fateful day, a day that was promised for thousands of years before, and the people should have known it, but they did not know it. Jesus wept and says, Oh, if you only would have known if you only would have known. But they didn't. And Jesus had to leave them desolate, he says. Beloved, here is an opportunity for you now to receive a message through us on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to him. And he says, right now, today, if you would receive that message by receiving him, you become a new creation and you will have a new purpose for living. To live for the one who died for you. So I'm going to ask you right now. If you've never received Christ as your personal Savior. Would you like to do that today? Right now? Now please remember now. This is a transaction between you and God and the Holy Spirit. Not between you and me or anyone else. And so if we ask to raise a hand or walk down the aisle. That does not save you. It simply indicates the fact that you have already been saved. Or you have a desire to do that. So I'm going to ask you right now. 
If you want to place faith in Christ or you have placed faith in Christ today, you just indicate it by raising your hand. It doesn't save you, but it indicates that you have accepted Christ or you would desire to do so with a little more explanation. You just raise your hand and put it down. Amen. Praise the Lord. Thank you. Amen. Praise the Lord. Anyone else? And let me speak for a few moments to those who profess to have accepted Christ. How is your life? What is the purpose for your living? Do you need to recommit your life to Jesus Christ? Do you need to acknowledge to him, Lord, I really have not been living for you. I've been living for myself. But today, I ask your forgiveness and I recommit myself to living for you. And with your help, I will share the message of reconciliation. Because I know I am a new creation in Christ and I want to live that way. If you want to make that commitment right now, if you have made it and you'd like to, or you'd like to speak to one of the pastors afterwards, would you raise your hand before we pray? Amen. 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 Anyone else? Okay, please be sure to see myself or Pastor Arnold or Pastor Cartwright or Albury or Roland Bryan or Pastor Fowler. We'd love to speak with you afterwards. Father, thank you for your word. It's so clear. It is so precise, so specific, so definite. Jesus died for us and as us that we might live for him and as he is. Grant, we pray, that we might do so today in the power of the indwelling Spirit of God. And all of God's people said, Amen.